It's hard to believe the summer has gone. This is the end of summer, kind of officially Labor Day weekend. Uh, it's time to put away the Hawaiian shirts and the shorts. And, uh, it's time to end Psalms in the summer. Uh, I, I enjoy over the summer, as I've heard from so many of you, just the potpourri of Psalms as we just see so many different themes and different things come out. I've picked one psalm for today as the end of summer to end with Psalm 110. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. One psalm that uh, I think you'll find this morning is a doozy. It's one that's just loaded with with stuff. Uh, So you better hang on tight because we're going to run through through a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, Let's just pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Uh, that in your word we discover your grace through Jesus Christ. We have sung about it. We have enacted a demonstration of it in the partaking of your supper. We're so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent Christ Jesus. Now as we come to your word, I pray that you would, through your spirit, open it to us, open our eyes that we might see, our ears that we might hear that we might behold the wonders of Your grace here. Enable me to speak clearly and keep me out of the way so that what we hear and what we focus upon is You this morning. For we need a a fresh glimpse of You that we might see You and be changed. So to that end, we commit ourselves and we ask Your blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm sure it's happened to you. You're sitting there and and uh, your phone rings. And you pull out. I actually left mine in my office. You pull out your cell phone. And you look and there it is. It's, uh, it's Aunt Mildred. Or maybe it's Uncle Bob or your neighbor Bob. Or maybe, as it was for me this week, it was the tree service guy. You answer the phone... And there's nobody there. Except in the background you hear noises and talking in the distance and you realize you've been pocket dialed. Right? Most of us have been there. We've been pocket dialed. And, it's, and, and most of us also live in fear that we're going to be the one who is pocket dialing someone. And we really hope that if it's you that we call, that you are kind enough and gracious enough to hang up before we say something embarrassing, right? And right now, those three of you who are left in the world who use a flip phone are smugly going, I never pocket dial anyone. (laughs) See? And I agree, there is one of the benefits of the dumb phone. Today we're in Psalm 110. It's a short psalm, just seven verses long. In this psalm, we find ourselves listening in on a conversation. And it's a conversation that is like no other. It is truly a marvel. One commentary says of this psalm, to the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles. Uh, 
To the early church, it was full of treasures. Indeed, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, said, It's brief in the number of its words, but vast and weighty as to its contents. The great reformer Martin Luther said of this psalm, he said, It's the crown of all the psalms, worthy to be overlaid with precious jewels. Indeed, the the New Testament thinks so highly, the scripture writers in the New Testament think so much of this psalm that as Derek Kidner says in his excellent commentary on the psalms, he says, it is more frequently cited by the New Testament writers than any other single portion of the scriptures. In other words, it's cited, it's quoted and referred to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. What that tells us is this is a significant psalm. Let's dig in. Begins, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord. I'm going to stop right there because there's some important things for us to see just right there. As I've already mentioned, this is an overheard conversation. We're listening in to someone else who is speaking says right there, the Lord says. The Lord, most of you know now that when you come in your Bibles and you read there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know what that means is. It, it means that the Hebrew word that's translated there as Lord is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. The name by which God revealed Himself to His people and gave as His personal name the name of relationship, the name of covenant, the name that is reserved in Scripture for God. The Father, the Supreme God. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is speaking. And who is He speaking to? He is speaking to, it says, to my Lord. The Hebrew word there for Lord is Adon or Adonai. means Master. And who is he? The rest of the psalm, it becomes clear as we go through. It is speaking of the Messiah, the Christ. Those words mean the same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. It means the, the one that God promised to send. The promised one, the anointed one. And this psalm is all about the Messiah. It's in Matthew chapter 22 that Jesus quotes this passage as He's speaking with the Pharisees. It's crucifixion week. There in the, in the temple courts, the Pharisees and all religious leaders have been trying to, to trap Jesus, to get Him to, to misspeak, to stumble, to embarrass Himself. They're trying to, trying to catch Him. When they have run out of things to say, Jesus responded to all of their questions he quotes this, ver- this passage and asks them a question. Jesus says in Matthew 22, he says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus here, as he quotes from Psalm 110, he affirms some things that they would all agree upon. That, first of all, he has them and he would agree with them when he asked whose son is the Messiah. And they said, well, he's the son of David. They would all agree on that. They would all agree as well that David was the author of this psalm. Just as it says right there in the inscription above, a psalm of David. That's part of the text. Interestingly enough, by the way, while the Pharisees would agree with Jesus on that, some modern scholars have decided to say that, that uh, well, we're not sure that David wrote this psalm. But we have, we can be assured David did because we have Jesus' word on it. You can't get a better authority than that. Jesus says right here, David wrote. Not only that, Jesus said God's Spirit is speaking through David. David in the Spirit. He is affirming that David, that this psalm, in fact, all of Scripture, is inspired by God. Jesus affirms the inspiration, the authority of Scripture. He also affirms that this psalm is speaking about the Messiah. If there's any question, Jesus has said this is all about the Messiah. The punchline comes as Jesus asked them a question, another question. Verse 45, Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? They had no answer. And they simply walked away. The point Jesus was making to them and for us to note is that Jesus is saying that the Messiah is David's son, but he is more than David's son. He is more than David's son because the Messiah who is spoken of here is greater than David because David calls him my Lord. So David recognizes this, this person is superior to him. Also, David is listening in as there's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Between Yahweh and this Lord who is the Messiah. And what we understand here, he's saying that the Messiah is pre-existing with God. Because... The Messiah hadn't come up until Jesus came. (laughs) But here he is in David's day talking with Yahweh. The point that Jesus is making is the Messiah will be more than a man. He is a man. He is the son of David, but he is also God. The Messiah must be both man and God. I think that's the point that Jesus is making And so, amazingly and wonderfully in this psalm, we're listening in to heaven as God the Father speaks with God the Son. That makes this a special psalm worthy of our attention this morning. There's much more to see. We keep looking again back to verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely 
on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, we just read those words and quite frankly, there's a lot there and it's kind of confusing. We have to unpack it a little bit. The main point of these three verses is this. The Messiah is King. As I said, this psalm is all about the Messiah. The Messiah is King. Verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah will sit at God's right hand until a time when his enemies will be vanquished. And then, verse 2, the Lord, it says, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The Messiah takes his place, ruling from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The holy scepter means the rule, the authority of the king. The Messiah takes the throne, the rule. And his rule, it says, will go forth from there. The implication is that it goes forth throughout the whole earth, that the Messiah rules over the whole earth. And verse 3, where it says that your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, it's saying that the subjects, the Messiah's subjects, will serve him freely and willingly and joyfully, and they'll live holy lives. The last phrase where it talks about from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours is a difficult one to translate, a difficult one to understand. Interpreters and scholars are all over, but basically it probably in poetic terms is talking about the strength and the beauty and the splendor of Messiah or possibly of the people who serve him. Put all this together, the Messiah is king. The Messiah will one day rule the world and he will rule over willing subjects after his enemies have been conquered. But before he does that, there will be a time where he sits at the right hand of Yahweh awaiting that day. And at God's right hand, he has all the power and all the authority of God because He is King and He is both man and God. All of that in those few verses. It was on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Peter stood in Jerusalem before a huge crowd that had come wondering, you recall, what the noise was as God sent His Holy Spirit upon the 120 who were gathered in the upper room awaiting the Spirit's arrival as Jesus had instructed them. You'll recall that. And Peter begins to preach a sermon. In that sermon, he comes and he quotes from this psalm. Peter says this, He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What he says is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, from the dead. And his ascension to heaven is proof positive that what is said here in this psalm is true about Jesus. Jesus is 
the Messiah. He is Lord. He is God. And He has ascended to the right hand of God. When He finishes His sermon, you'll recall 3,000 people right there said, we want to follow Jesus. They said, what do we need to do? (laughs) What do we need to do? You're right, we killed Him. But God had a purpose in it. But I move on. That's point one in this psalm. The Messiah is King. Point two we find in verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The second big point in this psalm is that the Messiah... It's not only a king, the Messiah is priest. By the way, before we say that, I need to say, notice it says the Lord. Again, Yahweh. When, When God speaks, we should listen, right? But when it says the Lord speaks and has sworn an oath, He has swore, He has sworn a vow. It's extra important. We really better pay attention. But when it then goes on to add to that, the Lord speaks, He's sworn a vow, and He won't change His mind. That's the Bible way of just kind of trying to put this in neon lights with flashing stuff all around to get our attention to say, what He says now is really, really important and we really, really, really ought to listen up. And so what does He say? The Messiah is a priest. Two things to notice here, and I'm going to cover them in reverse order of what he says. Two things we need to understand about the Messiah as priest. And God says it's important. We need to listen. First, he says he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I know that just blesses most of your hearts. Yes, I knew it. What's a Melchizedek? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. And it's a who who just shows up in three little verses back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek just bursts on the scene after when when Abraham is just returning from a successful military rescue mission. Abraham took a small army to go rescue his nephew Lot and all of the citizens of Sodom who had been captive, taken captive by these, these other folks. He goes on a rescue mission. As he returns, well, let's look at Genesis. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's Melchizedek. Still confused? Absolutely. Have to dig. Several things we need to notice about Melchizedek. First of all, his name. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he, it says here that he was king of Salem. Salem means peace, and it was the ancient name for Jerusalem. He's king of righteousness, and he's king of peace. 
A lot of you say, oh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Yeah. But there's more. It also tells us that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, which really confounds us because we wonder, where did this come from? He brings food and refreshment to Abraham. He pronounces a blessing on Abraham. Then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything. And then Melchizedek disappears off the pages of Scripture. We never see him again. He's only referred to here in Psalm 110 and then over in the book of Hebrews in several places. And we wonder, what's the point? Why does this psalm say that the Messiah is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Why does God say that of the Messiah? A couple of things. First, Messiah is going to be, as Melchizedek was, both a king and a priest. And you see what's unique about that is in Israel, you could not be both king and priest. Kings could not be priests. Priests could not be king. There was a, a king who tried to take on a role of a priest. His name was Uzziah. He was a godly king. At the end of his life, he got proud and he went into the temple and started doing the job of a priest. And God struck him with leprosy. For God says, you won't be kings, you won't be priests. Priests, you won't be kings. But Messiah is going to be both a king and a priest. Messiah's priesthood, like Melchizedek's, will not be through the Levitical line of priests, not through the tribe of Levi. All of the priests in Israel came through the tribe of Levi. God says the Messiah is going to be a priest, but not through the tribe of Levi. Furthermore, he says Messiah's priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is going to be superior to the priesthood of the Levites. Hebrews 7 explains how this works. We get to the New Testament, the other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, there in Hebrews, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, now, let's think this through. It was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham, and the one who blesses is greater than the one who is blessed. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the one who is lesser gives tithes to the one who is greater. And so Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than all of Abraham's descendants, who includes Abraham's great-grandson, Levi, which includes all of Levi's descendants, the Levitical line, which are the, the priests. And so Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites, Hebrews says. And then he says, Messiah is going to be a priest. First, a priest like Melchizedek, I think that's big. But the big point is this. He's going to be a priest who is forever. I think that's the big emphasis here. A priest, you remember, we understand, is one who intervenes, one who intercedes to God on our behalf. Hebrews 7, which over in the New Testament I just mentioned, talks about Melchizedek and, and Christ. Hebrews 7 goes on to say this and to talk about how Jesus as priest is superior to the Levites. 
And he says in several things, but one in particular I want to note, as he quotes from, he quotes from Psalm 110 and then goes on to say this. He says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, you recall, we, we talked about the bread that's the unleavened bread that's unstained by sin. Jesus, it's fitting that we needed a priest who was unstained by sin because he goes on to say that he, Jesus, has no need like the other priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Jesus was, is a sinless priest. But notice what he goes on to say. Since he, Jesus, did this once, offered himself once for all. Jesus offered up himself. He paid once in one sacrifice for all sin. He was able to do that as the sinless sacrifice who is both God and man. And as priest, Jesus Messiah has provided the way, opened up the way for you and me to be reconciled with God. To have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life, to have relationship with God. And all of that's marvelous, but here's the cool point, and I think the point, the cool point of this is God has promised Jesus is the forever priest. He will, in other words, never resign his position. Nor will God ever remove him from his position nor change the rules. Messiah priest has paid for your sin and mine. Our sins are forgiven. He is forever our advocate. He is forever our priest. And the point is we are secure in Him. When we've been there 10,000 years, as Amazing Grace says, We're not only singing His praises, but in 10,000 years, God's not going to say, well, I changed the rules. I've removed Jesus as priest, and you know, everything I said about you being forgiven, forget that. No. We are secure because we have Messiah who is a priest forever. Lastly, third point, verse 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. You say, wow, that's a lot of weird verses, strange stuff, a lot of things going on. Big point is this. Messiah is judge. Messiah is king. Messiah is priest. Messiah is judge. Four things I want to quickly note about him here. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. The Lord there is the Messiah is at the right hand of God. Again, the emphasis there is that he at the right hand of God has all authority and all power because he is the God man. He has all of God's power and with all of God's power, he comes as judge, unleashing fearsome judgment. These verses describe here a gruesome judgment on earth that the Messiah will bring. See, you know, don't you, 
The Bible tells us that God in these days is restraining, is holding back His wrath against sin. The Bible could not be more clear that there is a day coming where God will break the dam and will unleash His righteous, holy anger, His righteous wrath against sin. The Bible also could not be more crystal clear that when this day of wrath and judgment comes, it is the Messiah who brings it. I quoted earlier from Revelation chapter 5, that great scene in heaven where there's the Lamb of God and every creature in heaven saying, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. They're saying that because the question is, who is worthy to open the seals? There's a scroll which is the title deed to earth. And the Lamb of God, Jesus, begins to break the seals. He is the one worthy, you see. And He begins to break the seals on the scroll. And as every seal is broken, as you see the book of Revelation unfold, that judgments come upon the earth. And it culminates and climaxes when when the Messiah, Jesus Himself, comes to earth in power and glory. And everything the Bible talks about in the great day of the Lord and the wrath of God all happens. And Jesus comes and He judges the earth. We see it in Jesus' own words. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Conclusion of that, a few verses later, it says that, and those will go away into eternal punishment. The goats and the sheep, He says... The sheep go into eternal life. The righteous go into eternal life. After the Messiah has come, after His enemies are vanquished, it says that He will drink from the brook by the way. The point, I think, is simply this, that when all is done, the Messiah brings rest and refreshment, peace upon earth. And then it says He will lift up His head. What it means is He will be exalted. Jesus Messiah will rule over the whole earth after, go back to verse 1 of our psalm, all the opposition has been conquered and judged. Jesus Messiah is the central story of all the Bible. In term many use today, He is the meta-narrative. From the beginning, when God created and Adam and Eve were there and in the garden, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned. Right there, Genesis chapter 3, God introduces the first first promise, the first hint that there is coming a, a Redeemer, a Rescuer. All through the Old Testament, God gives little glimpses, little bits of information which continue to unfold and lay out before us His plan for a Redeemer who will come. And we come here to Psalm 110, which you never knew had all this in it, did you? 
these seven verses so rich, so deep, giving us just a glimpse into God's great plan. All the prophets spoke, looked forward to His coming, then Jesus came. He arrived, Emmanuel, God with us. Yet He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him, John 1 says. He was killed by the very ones who should have welcomed Him, the ones who called themselves God's people. And yet even that was God's plan, as Peter said in that sermon in Acts chapter 2. God did this because at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin to be our Savior. Then three days later, we know the story. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and then He later ascended to heaven where now He presently, as this psalm tells us, sits at the right hand of God the Father. And there, as this psalm tells us, He acts as our and serves as our great High Priest. And He awaits the day when He will return, as this psalm tells us, as we saw in Matthew 25, as we see in in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ returns in power and glory. And He comes as judge. And then He takes up His rightful place on the throne of David. And there in Revelation 20, 19 and 20, the culmination of the story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the promise made in Genesis 3 is fulfilled fully in Revelation. Messiah Jesus is King. And every person who has ever lived has a destiny to one day bow before Him. And in that day when we bow before Him, each one of us will face Jesus in one of two ways. Either as our Savior and priest, the one who has brought us into a right relationship to God through His own sacrifice, and we will enjoy Him forever, or else, we will face Him as our judge and we will stand condemned. That is a clear teaching of Scripture, Old Testament and New. Jesus explains what makes the difference between those two destinies in His own words. One verse I quoted earlier, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have Eternal life. Two verses later, he says this. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The question before us today, the question before every person in this world today is the very same question that Jesus asked of the Pharisees in Matthew 22, which I read earlier, where Jesus asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? Do you know and trust him as your savior? I hope and pray It's my deepest hope and prayer that every one of you does. 
Because if you do not, the Bible says you will face Him one day as judge. All of that in this little psalm. But isn't it a marvel? Father, we needed to hear this this morning to be reminded of Your greatness, of the greatness of Your plan from eternity to eternity, from beginning to end, it's all there. And there are truths here that we must not ignore. There may be someone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus. They need to hear the truth of who Jesus is, of who you are. Yes, you are a God of love, but you are also a God who will judge sin. But because of your goodness and your mercy and your love, you sent Jesus to die in our place. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, who we often think of as meek and mild, and He is, but He also is Messiah, the Judge. Father, how it is Your desire, as the Scripture says, that no one perish, but that all have eternal life. Your invitation to anyone here is if to come and trust Jesus, to know Him as their Savior personally. Father, for all of us who know Him, this reminds us there is an imperative upon us. We have been entrusted with the truth. We have been entrusted with this marvelous message. There is hope. There is salvation. There is eternal life. And it's found in Jesus. And there's a world of folks out there who need to hear. May we be faithful to share this good news. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.